hello and welcome back to episode 51 of the Film 89 podcast. I'm Hayden, one of the writers and editors of Film 89. Today, we're going to be discussing two very different films. Despite the 15 years that separate them, they're both considered highlights of the superhero comic book genre, and strong arguments can be made that each are the greatest film adaptations of their respective titular characters to date. Joining me is the perfect man to discuss these movies, a dear friend of the Film 89 podcast, John Arminio. It's such a pleasure to be chatting with you again. How are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure to be back, Aiden. So what's the news on your end? We're all getting a bit sick of COVID chat, but how's life in the States? We're going through some uh, hefty strife uh, on the streets of major American cities all over the place. Uh, so that's sort of overshadowing COVID talk. Uh, but, you know, day to day, you know, you see everyone in masks, you know, more and more now. But thankfully, uh, as at least where I am, because the governor instituted a, a, a mandatory mask requirement. So, yeah, there's a sort of a pall over everything we do in America as fascism is being amped down on cities like Portland and, and Chicago in the future. So we're... It's sounding borderline post-apocalyptic over there compared to, I mean, here in Melbourne, Australia, where, yeah, we're back down in into lockdown. We got out of it for a couple of weeks there and now we're back in for, well, they, they set down six weeks for our renewed lockdown and mandatory mask wearing, but I personally can't really see it ending after six weeks. I think it will be extended because our our COVID numbers are, are only climbing at the moment. So we'll just see where that leads us. But yeah, the, the, the topics today are a little bit less intense, I think. Although you might not say this, that for one of the films. So the two movies we're going to be talking about, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Not really the kind of movies you might pair together, even though they're superhero movies, but they really couldn't be much more different, could they? Mask of the Phantasm really is characterized by a very uh, stark and very stylized animation style that makes a lack of motion um, and, you know, shadows and a lack of detail part of its aesthetic, while as Spider-Verse, it's like hyper-color, hyper-movements, uh, both in its characters and in the camera, camera movements, um, this very cut-cut-cut editing, even editing within edits, like as panels pop up on the screen like it's in a comic book but both films i think really utilize comic book iconography uh, brilliantly but just in very different ways yeah i mean uh, the eras in which they're made just naturally means that they're so different visually their productions themselves were so starkly different as well um which we'll get into all these differences are going to they're going to come through just as we discuss them separately. And I do want to start with Mask of the Phantasm because it's going to take us back to 1993. I think it had a Christmas release in the States that year. So I was about two months old or three months old myself at the time. So I didn't actually see this movie until a lot later. I do remember the series from my childhood, you know, especially Batman Beyond, which was actually called Batman in the Future, I think, or Batman from the Future, Batman of the Future, I think it was uh, here in Australia. But yeah, so that one actually was on TV a lot more than, than the original series in the sort of period in which I can remember Batman becoming sort of a big a big deal for me. Do you recall when you first saw this movie in particular? I definitely didn't see it in theaters, but I'm pretty sure I rented it several times once it made its way to video. Because, uh, yeah, I was born in 1984, so the animated series was a real, like, in the, in the sweet spot for me as a kid, and I would watch that as often as I could. But yeah, the movie 
did not make much of an impact in theaters, unfortunately. I think um, Warner Brothers didn't quite know what they had on their hands or what, what to do with it uh, because it is pretty dark, even when compared to the animated series uh, in both its visual aesthetic and in, in its tone. And definitely that we're in sort of the height of like Disney's uh, second golden age. And I don't. I just don't think there was much room for an animated movie like this in the marketplace. No, and, you know, 1993, so we're on the back of the two Tim Burton films, which were really successful. And I think the Master of Phantasm came after the success of the first season of the show. Warner Brothers was quick to put a feature-length film into production, but it was initially intended for direct-to-video release. So up until about, I think it was under a year out from release it was changed to a theatrical release the production team completed the film in eight months which is pretty unheard of most animated films take upward uh, two years plus to come together and this movie was really fast-tracked and that includes obviously they had to adjust the the aspect ratio for the widescreen of the cinema just looking into the history of this movie itself even from just a narrative perspective it's it's quite fascinating because initially you know it was pitched as a movie taking place in arkham asylum in which batman was going to be put on trial by the inmates who would be you know trialing him for being the reason that they exist at all um which is it's a very common sort of notion these days. You know, you see it in like, you saw it in Civil War, Captain America Civil War, where, you know, the villains are, are there because the heroes are there to begin with. But I think that it was actually rejected back in 93 because they considered it too dark. When I hear, when I read about that, that sort of direction, made me think of Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum story. That that image of the Joker is glued to my mind. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, that Grant Morrison um, Arkham Asylum graphic novel is probably my favorite thing Grant Morrison's ever done. Uh, It just, you know, really, really goes into what it feels like to have a mental illness, really. I mean, I've never been as crazy as somebody who deserves to be locked up in Arkham Asylum, but you can really feel the madness of the place in that graphic novel uh, and for uh, the animated series creative team to try and mine that for uh, inspiration I think is pretty ambitious. I love the way the animated series uses its villains and you know one of my favorite episodes is one called Almost Got Him where uh, it's just a group of villains telling stories about how they almost killed Batman and it's actually one of the lighter episodes because they all end with sort of a punchline of like how they got foiled and so the series was able to sort of balance the lighter tone and the darkness that is inherent to to the Batman character. So it'd be interesting to see how that developed, but I'm glad it resulted in the movie that we got. Yeah, so into the movie itself, it was it was actually inspired by the 1987 miniseries Batman Year Two, which is a pretty mm-hmm. interesting inspiration, given that obviously Year One is one of the f- most famous comics ever, and there's definitely Year One ins- inspirations in Mask of the Phantasm, but Year Two is is a lot less popular. Have you read it? Yeah. I like it, but it's definitely not as sort of synchronous as the movie. Like the way the movie, I think, ties the characters and the plot threads together is, is brilliant. And it just sort of feels very standard comic booky year two. Like it's, you know, good, but just the way that uh, there's this emotional connection that 
Batman has to the Phantasm and to his his own past, I think it just doesn't carry over into into year two, at least not nearly as well. Yeah. The the thing about Mask of the Phantasm, I haven't read year two, but the thing about Phantasm that really works for me is that it it manages to combine the camp and the tragedy of of the Batman mythos really, really beautifully. It really seems to to do justice to the character and its, its print publication origins because it manages to combine all these aspects, you know, the Joker is in here and he almost steals the show, you know, he, he it's the kind of character that obviously can can overshadow whatever else is going on and I think they play it just right that his place in the film feels natural but also doesn't steal the spotlight from the central um, the central plot. Yeah, we don't get him until we're more than halfway through the movie. Like we get him we get a like a proto version of him before he's actually the Joker, but Joker himself doesn't appear until you know halfway through, and so he's not the main antagonist in the movie. He's a literal wild card, which I think you know, like thematically and linguistically, is appropriate for the character because I think especially in the comics now, there's this obsession with the Joker being an agent of chaos um, ever since the Heath Ledger version of the Joker. And I think that's been a disservice to the character because in the current run, there's a story called the Joker War where his plans are so detailed as to make you think he has the brain of like Lex Luthor or something. But but they're also trying to make him an agent of chaos like people who know the Nolan movies want. And you can't have him be an agent of chaos but also have him weave this incredibly complex plot thread it just it doesn't work. So in trying to make him everything, he ends up being nothing. Whereas in here, he's creating chaos. You know, he he's he's approached by these other characters and he's pulled into their world um, out of desperation by these mobsters who are being murdered. You know, he's able to basically interact with the characters on his own terms, and that's what makes him so dangerous. And it makes his battles with both the Phantasm and Batman so much more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll take a step back because the we'll give a, a little bit of a rundown of what this movie is actually about. And it, it, it is essentially an origin story for both Batman and in a lot of ways, the Joker, obviously, but it really, it follows, it follows two sort of timelines. It, it's a, a kind of a, a crime drama where there's a new Batman esque looking villain in Gotham killing mobsters and the police target Batman as the culprit. And while all this is happening, uh, we're seeing a flashback, a series of flashbacks, uh, showing Bruce Wayne meeting Andrea Beaumont at the same time as he's trying to establish his vigilante career in Gotham. And honestly, it's one of the best origins for any superhero that I, I can remember watching. It, the, the the flashbacks, they sort of unfold and they they start optimistic and you're sort of, you know where it's going, but it, it, it yeah. lulls you into this sense of, you know, Bruce Wayne could actually be happy. You know, he's, he's found someone yeah. who who can make him happy. And then progressively, each flashback gets a little grimmer. You know, there's there's visual cues. There's the bats flying out of the cave um, after he's proposed to her later on. There's that beautiful scene in the cemetery, probably the best scene in the movie, for me at least, when Bruce goes to his parents' grave and, and almost pleads for them to allow him to walk away from his promise. And, and It's heartbreaking. He falls to his knees and says, I, it just doesn't hurt so bad anymore. Like yeah. He's 
trained his dead parents for the for permission to be happy. And and you you know he he's a human being who deserves to be happy, but you know how this is going to end and it just it's so tragic. Yeah, and I had I had actually forgotten that that scene ends with Andrea meeting him at the cemetery and she walks up to him and says, "You know, maybe they sent me." And it, it just just works on so many levels. And you sort of I don't know if you you've listened to the score on its own before i haven't actually by shirley walker who did all the music for the show as well but her score particularly the the love theme for the two characters is just perfect you know obviously the animated series and this movie owe a lot to the dan elfman score the original batman movie but what the score does for the for this film is that it brings in this like Wagnerian opera element that just increases the level of, of drama every time that they use this sort of this sort of choral effect that echoes the theme of the Batman of, of the film. And it, it brings in this element of like the gothic romance that I find fascinating because you know the series is obviously steeped in both uh, pulp novels and, and pulp characters like like the shadow or phantom or or the spider and, and in film noir and the way it's shot and the way it's lit. But this film really brings in elements of of the gothic romance. So like old money and its legacy interfering with happiness, uh, the concept of happiness being a burden, being dwarfed and suffocated by the architecture uh, of your ancestors, but literally and figuratively, abandoned castles or fortresses, just like in this case, the, uh, the World's Fair, the pretense of the supernatural, so like in The Hound of the Baskervilles, of a metaphorical black pit of, of revenge, old loves returning, and all conspiring to destroy what could have been a great love. And these are all like um, hallmarks of the gothic romance that this film incorporates, and I, I find that addition to be really fascinating. Yeah, and it makes it a, a perfect sort of, well, an essential companion to the series because obviously the show has that that art deco or as the producers called it, I think it was dark deco they sort of termed it, <laughs> that style, that that beautiful gothic Gotham of the show and how, you know, that most of the backgrounds were actually drawn onto black paper. I'm not sure if yeah. the same is true of the, of the movie. I know that the opening sequence, um, because obviously the producers handed them a, a bigger budget for the film once they decided it was going to theatres. So they really took that and ran with it and created a holy CGI introduction sequence where it moves through Gotham City. Um, you hear CGI sequence and you think 1993 anything you might. It kind of sounds like it could have been a disaster, but it, it looks really beautiful and it's great. And it, and it has that, as you say, that choral sort of theme. Yeah, that choir in the background. It tells you, you know, this is a story in the same universe as the animated series, but it's it's bigger than that. It's It's got this really grand operatic feel to it that makes it stand on its own at the same time. And it's the only time that they actually gave Batman a love, a romance. From what I can remember, um, I don't think any of the episodes give him a romantic subplot he definitely had like flirtations with yes. um in, in the show and there there were one or two other characters uh, and, and talia al ghul uh, a little bit um made a, a couple of appearances in the show but i don't think that love story was as intense or in-depth at, at any point than in, in the film the movie does a really good job of just saying this was it this was this was bruce's one chance at at love and one chance at happiness and once that door shut, it was never going to open again. Yeah, and I think it, um, his relationship with Alfred, I think, is also really fascinating because there's a couple of moments in, in the film where Alfred is like is desperate for Bruce to find 
love and, and this romance. And I think you see Alfred is aware that this might be Bruce's only chance at real happiness and love. And Alfred being his father figure, I th he sees the tragedy developing. And, and so you see the tragedy of, of Bruce's future uh, through his eyes. Alfred's a, actually really strong in this film. Like he's a, He plays a very understated role as a character, but his first line of dialogue I just always makes me laugh. I, he goes, what rot, sir? Why, you're the very model of sanity once he, he sees on the news that, that Batman's being, being uh, considered insane for going after mobsters now. Just all these, and, and they're very Alfred, like those sly little yeah. comments that he makes. You know, he loves Bruce to death, but he knows that what he's doing is, is pretty nuts and he just goes along with it because that's what any good parent does. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that, that line is, um, I've just pressed your tights and reloaded your exploding gas balls. Yes. <laughs> and all the characters and their their portrayals, and I, I can't recall the voice actor of Alfred. We, we almost don't need to name drop Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., who is actually an American. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, we, we barely need to name drop, you know, Conroy and, and Hamill. We we know they're great. We know that any time they play Batman and the Joker, they, they absolutely nail it. And for many people, they are the essential voices of those characters. But all of the performances in this movie are, are spot on. Who was it that played Andrea? Because, obviously, she's a completely original character for this movie. And that's always... Dana Delaney. Of, Yes. Name. It's always kind of a, I don't really want to say risk, but you know, you bring in an original character into a known property and you, you try and tell an, a story in which they play a really pivotal role and it, it's a win-loss win situation. You can either pull it off extremely well or, or it can really just fall flat and Andrea is just a wonderful character. Has she shown up again in, in comics? Has she, has she played um, a role? I, I actually, I don't know. But I certainly don't recall her any time recently uh, showing up. I could be wrong, but uh, I, I can't remember her. I mean, I, I assume she'll be under the mask of the Phantasm in Tom King's upcoming Bat-Cat uh, maxi-series, which, having now watched Mask of the Phantasm recently and being a big fan of King, I know that you have... Uh, did You loved his Batman run, didn't you? Indubitably, yes. Yeah, so, um, and I, I haven't read all of his run, but I am a big fan of his of his maxis in general. Yeah. So I'll have to check check that cat out whenever that comes. I don't think there's a release date or anything. It it doesn't seem to be coming anytime soon. Yeah, it really. Yeah, I was really frustrated with the way his run ended because it was cut short. Um, it was supposed to be a hundred issues, and it, it uh, lasted for eighty five, which is still you know like an amazing run for any any writer. But that pushed the um, Bat Cat Maxi Series back, and I think COVID messed it up. And now with the um, Rorschach Maxi Series announced, I'm not sure how that's going to affect the Bat Cat series. This whole Joker War story, it's it's a real mess uh, over at the, the the Batman House at, at DC. Yeah, it really is at the moment. Like I, a lot of um, Tom King's run was pretty controversial, but I loved it because it did something new with the character. Like it really told a genuine love story between him and Catwoman, and I I loved. Every second of it, uh, there was the aborted wedding was pretty bad, um, but that, that was mostly the fault of DC's promo team, not on the actual story itself. Yeah, I've read his run up to just before the wedding. Actually, I think I've read the first six volumes off the top of my head, something like that. And yeah, I was I was loving it. I, I found that it was slow getting going at the start. Um, I didn't particularly love the first story arc, but from there on, yeah, once 
once King got to play with Catwoman, yeah, I think it got really, really, really good. I need it. I need to finish that off, to be honest. Yeah, I think what was really insightful, and I think sort sort of relates to Batman in Mask of the Phantasm, is that um, in the storyline I Am Suicide, Batman and Catwoman are sort of communicating through letters, and they talk about how each one of them, when they were young, they committed metaphorical suicide. They erased their past selves so they could become this now new manifestation of their pain so that no one else would experience the pain that they felt. And so you see Bruce do that very thing in this movie when Andrea leaves him. Like he, that, that Bruce at that moment is dead. And from then on, there is only the Batman era Bruce Wayne. Yeah. And he, he pulls on the mask and, and Alfred is genuinely horrified when he sees when he sees it for the yeah. first time and yeah that's it that's that's the big turning point and then later on the, the obviously andrea comes back and you know spoiler alert for a 15 year year old movie yeah. andrea is the phantasm um for a while it's the major mystery in the film and then eventually sort of the her father is presumed the the phantasm himself i mean i want to get i want to get your thoughts on the phantasm character itself because the one thing that always sort of is just in the back of my mind when I watch this movie is the whole smoke gimmick where she manages to to vanish into thin air and they never explain it and I think it's sort of one of those things where you just have to suspend your belief yeah and and at one point yeah because at, at one point you know Bruce is chasing her with the bat plane and it seems like she's out running him as yeah, yeah. in her phantasm costume. But what I love about the phantasm is that, you know, when I was a kid and I saw the phantasm, it, it, it looked really cool. It was, you know, this, this evil grim reaper ghostly visage come to enact vengeance upon the wicked. But as an adult, it's like, oh, it, it's too much. Like mm. it's you know, the, you know, the, the, the skull metal mask, the ragged hood and robe and, and the, the cloak and the, the smoke and the metal hook hand and like your angel of death awaits like kind of voice like oh it's this is somebody who's not used to doing the superhero thing like they're it's a hat on a hat and so yeah this is not batman like batman is very logical in how he is trying to create fear in the people that he encounters so he can slip in and out of the shadows whereas the phantasm is right up there in your face and very gimmicky it's created by somebody who is damaged and we're supposed to be able to see that in how like sort of garish the character is yeah very true and one of the things that i find is a really really strong sort of thematic element in the movie is that you know it's it's justice versus vengeance it's bruce's mission versus andrea's mission which is purely driven by the need to avenge her father's death and you know there's that great scene when he when bruce as batman goes to visit her and they sort of they they say to each other i'm trying to remember the line but batman batman turns and looks at her as he's leaving through the window and he accuses her of doing everything for her father and then she she snaps back at him that he's the only person in the room that's that's still if if there's one person in this room that knows what it's like to be a prisoner of their parents it's you or something to that effect and it it, that's that scene sort of it nails or not the difference between the two but it really gets to the heart of 
of how similar but different they are, you know, and, and I love that Andrea as a character is able to, to do that, is able to sort of, you know, well, you're not perfect here, you know, you're you're also, you know, trapped by your own psyche and, and you're doing all this because you're just a damaged individual and, and Bruce has no reply to that. And it's it's heartbreaking because they get a second chance, like that and you don't expect it. Like they they do find each other again and they do start to think, well, can we give this a go again? And it does happen very fast, but Bruce even says, you know, this is happening so fast. Um, what am I meant to do about this? In the climax when when she's trying to kill the Joker and all the explosions are going down and, and that's when they she just she can't let go of her need for revenge and bloodlust and, and he, he sticks to his conviction. like he can't he can't look past that. Neither of them can look past their own their own their own demons really and that's that's where yeah. it ends. Yeah, she she screams at him and also to the universe like look what they did to us, what we could have had and that in itself is a very, you know, gothic sort of summation of, of the story we just witnessed. But yeah, she's not only consumed by the pain of losing her father, um, she's consumed by the pain of the the life that could have been. Every time she looks at Bruce, she sees the past 10 years that could have been, you know, this happy married couple that, that could have existed between her and Bruce. And because of people like the Joker, it's been taken away. And so, you know, in a sense, she's why Batman exists, so that that pain can never happen again to somebody. Um, but, you know, she's been so consumed by revenge that, that she can't see past her own pain. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, in a in a sort of roundabout way, the, the, the movie is limited by its... Obviously, it has to cater to everyone. It's an all-ages sort of film, and it, it can't say too much without getting messy, but... It does obviously go with the notion that finding love equals happiness, which isn't true, but it's it's a good it's a good way to actually put together what the film is trying to say, which is that Bruce Wayne can't be happy. Like it's <laughs> the the universe is just against him on this one. And that's part of the the mythology and it's it's part of the beauty. It doesn't overstate it, it doesn't try and do too much with it. I want to talk about how the mystery is sort of really authentically, it, it sort of, it throws you just enough to not think Andrea is involved. Having her play such a prominent role in the flashbacks is sort of the first indicator that, oh, is she the villain? But then, you know, they have her, they have her on the plane when she calls up Arthur Reeves, um, the corrupt politician. Um, and that's the day after the first phantasm attack. So immediately you sort of, she's cleared of, of suspicion. And then obviously we don't learn that the, the father is actually dead until quite quite a bit later. And it's not because it's not hidden from us because they're trying to trigger us. It's it's not one of those things where, well, that should have come up, but it's it's a yeah. little cheat of the script writing. It does actually tell its Stylishly avoided. Yeah, it really is. Because there's no reason for it to have actually come up. Up yeah. to that point, you know, it's we don't feel cheated. We it's it's actually quite a rewarding mystery, um, and all this is achieved in what a seventy-minute runtime. <laughs> it, it's like seventy-five minutes. Yeah, and and even the mystery is um, further deepened because the Joker thinks it's Arthur Reeves who's killing everybody because when he was coming up, he was intimately involved in the now deceased Beaumont's political and business machinations so arthur reeves has a motivation to kill all these guys too um and so when we get the joker approaching reeves it's 
we know it's not him. Other logical suspect that's not Andrea. And so it just makes the mystery more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk about Arthur Reeves for a bit because um, initially, he, I mean, he's he's a fairly generic sort of archetype. He's a bit of an asshole. He's, he's uh, interested in the woman that you know, Bruce used to date. But the performance by Hart Boschner is is really solid. Um, and I just think about the scene when when Arthur has had his confrontation with the Joker and the Joker's poisoned him and they take him to the hospital. He's just laughing because obviously he's, he's poisoned with the laughing gas. And he's, the tears are just streaming down his face, which is just such a great, like, grisly detail in that scene. Yeah, and that vocal performance of the the laughter, and it's I, I watch it and I try and put myself in the shoes of the the actor who had to sort of reach that depth of emotion where he's laughing but he's crying and he's he's in agony, and he's trying to speak through it, and it's really quite horrifying. When you're infected with you know the Joker serum, you're the animation style certainly mirrors the Joker's smile. And so it's mm. up to the actor to then sort of mimic Mark Hamill's performance as the Joker, which is a tall order. And it's helped in a way by the sound design because it, that scene with him in the hospital is preceded by the Joker's laugh sort of echoing into the firmament. And that's slowly blended with an ambulance siren, which is then slowly blended in with Arthur's laugh. And so it just creates this headspace of being horrified by just the sound of laughter. And then with, with, with a Bachner's performance, it just really makes you feel for this character who's been nothing but a slime ball up until that moment yeah 100 percent. and it's it's another one of those scenes where even though the, the vocal performance is great it's another scene that highlights to me that this kind of story couldn't have worked in live action mm-hmm. and so much of this film is that and i mean we have discussed the phantasm's seemingly supernatural ability to to vanish and then reappear which Again, suspension of disbelief. But, um, you know, you've got the the climax where, uh, or near the climax where Andrea is being <laughs> pulled into the giant fan at the world's, at the rundown world's fair. The Joker and Batman flying through the, is it a, a parking lot or whatever it is? Yeah, a, a vacant space, yeah. Yeah, and, and these things somehow, they somehow make these really campy, really silly sequences work in this really dark and somewhat grounded universe that they've built it just it would never work in live action and that's why i think that this film in particular is the best batman film to to capture the essence of the character and and really be able to to depict almost every person's vision of what batman and what gotham is because yeah it can have a character like the joker who's so out there and it can have all these mobsters you know trying to figure out who's killing them and and they manage to make these two very different aspects work seamlessly together yeah and i think you know you mentioned the joker and batman fly together i think that's one of a uh, sort of an exemplar of their relationship like the joker has this very james bond backpack uh, or rocket pack on and he's dragging batman along with him and he says uh you don't know when to quit do you what are you doing you're crazy the joker calling batman crazy I'm your only chance out of here. Let me go or we'll both die. And then through his gritted teeth, Batman says, whatever it takes. And he yeah. like, turns him to crash into the ground. Like these two guys hate each other. And it's, yeah. I can't think of any other moment in any movie uh, where you get that sort of just perfectly nailing their relationship like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's that scene that 
almost for me it steals the spotlight from the 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 main plot which is obviously the phantasm and andrea and bruce's relationship it it does pull it back when andrea shows up at the end there and they they go their separate ways and everything sort of blows up and then obviously it ends with andrea on on the boat showing us that she survived and and bruce finds finds the pocket watch in the cave um so it does bring it sort of back to its central theme and its 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 main plot but yeah i think i mean they didn't even want to use the joke in this film as with anything they sort of thought you know anytime you use the joker you risk overusing the joker and i think they managed to balance it really really well especially in the animated series the joker is just so over the top you know the the first episode he shows up in the in the show is the second ever episode that aired which was Christmas with the Joker, I think. Yeah. And he flies out of Arkham Asylum on a Christmas tree. I watched that as an adult and I, it almost, lo- it, it kind of loses me a little bit. I almost can't just go with it, but. Uh, well, yeah, th- that's a very sort of 1966 Batman toned episode. But in the movie, like, I love the, the peaks of the human you know, character before he became the Joker. You know, there's this one chilling moment where Andrea, as a young woman, um, in a flashback, comes home and she sees the Joker walk out of her house and, you know, they bump into each other and, like, she drops her groceries and he silently picks up and eats an apple and as if he's unfazed by what he's just done. And we we don't see anything, but she runs into her house and she, she screams and then, you know, we fade back into the present. And so we... We see the, you know, the evil seeds of the Joker um, in these flashbacks in in pretty subtle ways. In that sense, we're able to, you know, take the Joker much more seriously than in an episode like Christmas with the Joker. And I think um, in Mark Hamill's performance, he does go to more of a baritone. One of the times the Joker is up here. But when he's he says things like "You're harder to kill than a cockroach on steroids," like he's taking things much more seriously, and you know he can, and you know he kills the Joker, ends up killing Salvador Valestro, and you know planting a bomb on him to try and kill who's ever killing the mobsters, and so he's he's a much more dangerous and malevolent presence in the movie than in the animated series. Yeah, they get they get always quite a bit with this movie, and I think that was a result of the the move to theatrical release they got quite a bit of freedom um because yeah you see you see blood you see quite graphic death i mean it's you know it's not appalling stuff but it's it certainly goes places that the that the show never does and you're right the the subtlety is everything with the particularly with joker in the flashbacks you you hear so much among you know comic book readers and batman fans about how you know they'd rather the Joker not have an origin. Well, here he's actually given some backstory that he was a mobster, but it's so subtle that no one ever really talks about it or thinks about it. But it, it it's a testament to the fact that they they weave it so seamlessly into this this canon that they've sort of created in yeah because yeah, it's not an origin story. We just see him before he was a Joker, and then after he became the Joker, we still don't get exactly know how he becomes he becomes the Joker. True. Have you seen the the other movies in the animated series sort of backlog? They had Sub-Zero, which was sort of something of a tie-in with the later, the Schumacher Batman movies. I've seen uh, that one, and then um, I think that's the only other one from that era uh, that I've seen. I, I didn't see the Batman Beyond, like, what is that, Return of the Joker? I think yeah, it's you haven't seen it? 
I said I have. Yeah, that's. I mean, that one's probably as close to phantasm in quality as, as any of them. But this is the one that stands out as yeah, being able to to really stand alone, and like the level of quality is is unmatched. I don't. I think in any animated Batman movie and maybe live action, I don't know what your thoughts are. Like if you put this movie on a pedestal and you had Dark Knight with it, for example, I mean, do you do you place one higher than the other? Yeah, um, yeah, because you know, like I said at the beginning, I think the Joker as an agent of chaos, you know, as great as Heath Ledger is in Dark Knight, I think it's a, a sort of a flawed premise because he does so much plotting in that movie. Like he's in the head, he's planting explosives all over Gotham, he's you know, taking these boats hostage, et cetera. So it, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't track as as a, like a, an, a logical antagonist. And so I'm always like taking myself out of the movie. And um, every time Christian Bale talks as Batman, I'm taken out of the movie. It, it, it's silly. You know, as sort of symphonic and operatic in the technical aspects that the Nolan Batman movies are, um, they just can't come close to the emotional resonance of, of this movie. Um, I, I do love the, the Tim Burton movies. I'm uh, I'm a big you know fan of Tim Burton and his aesthetic and his whole deal. But I think there are more Tim Burton movies than Batman movies. If that makes sense, especially Batman Returns, which I think is, is the, the better of the two. So Phantasm for me is is the uh, Batman movie. I've always said that I kind of wish Tim Burton got to finish off a trilogy. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Those Batman movies aren't really Batman movies. And you can argue that the same goes for the Dark Knight trilogy, which again, I really like, but arguably they're not so much Batman movies as they are sort of crime dramas or, or you know, disaster movies as with as with The Dark Knight Rises. But I think so much of the conversation when it comes to superhero movies is is that the, the villain makes the movie and, and, you know, how good is the villain and that sort of dictates how good the film ends up being. But this is the one that that, that doesn't matter. Like as as good as yeah. the Phantasm is as a character because because of how good Andrea is as a character. This is that movie where the fact that Bruce Wayne is such a a strong character and such a vulnerable human being, that's what really drives this movie and, and really elevates it. Yeah, I totally agree. This is the most interesting Bruce Wayne and, and Batman has been on on the big screen. Um, I'm really looking forward to what Matt Reeves does with with Batman in in his new film because he was able to make some incredible uh, Planet of the Apes movies, which if you had asked me before those movies were made if there was any hope of of those being as great as they were, I would have said no chance, but I was proven wrong. I hope he proves me wrong with his film. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I wouldn't say I'm excited for the Batman, even though, as you say, I'm also a big fan of uh, of those apes movies. I just can't see a movie based on the Batman property that will break my heart the same way this movie breaks my heart. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, there's it's there's just... such courage in this movie to just be sad. Like, yeah. there, there's an emotional vulnerability that this movie goes to that I haven't seen any of the live-action movies have the, the courage to, to go to. to. To see Batman get physically and emotionally beaten down over uh, multiple times, I you know, I think is what makes this movie so affecting. Yeah, he's so fallible and he's so human. Like, the, there's a scene in the flashback where he takes on the the motorbike riders who are who are robbing someone, and he gets distracted by Andrew in the background, and that's how he fails to stop the criminals and then you know she tries to you know take care of him see if he's okay and he just snaps at her and walks away and it's just really small things like that like like that's not something a a a well-behaved person would do 
so he's he's not perfect but he's very human and he's very relatable and for that reason he's his mission actually makes sense and the sacrifices he makes for that mission are just that much more painful to watch. Yeah. You know, we, we get very little of Bruce Wayne's decision to be Batman in the Tim Burton films and in the Nolan films, it just seems inevitable that he's going to be Batman. But here, you know, we, we see the pain of that decision and we see him throw away or, you know, Andrew and Bruce Wayne sort of throw away the love they could have had for, for each other. And, 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 you know, it's, it's a tragedy. Yeah. It dangles that alternative, alternate reality in our faces. And it's like, anytime I watch this movie, I think, you know, what if, what, maybe it'll end differently this time. And, and it just, and it doesn't, and it doesn't feel like it's, you know, some bullshit like destiny. It just feels like bad luck. I, I think that there is some, some sort of like Greek tragedy sort of arc uh, to, to Batman's life where, you know, everything sort of conspired for his parents to be murdered in, in the alley in, in that one night. Um, but, you know, in this film, the the possible paths from that one de- defined event could perhaps lead, lead somewhere else. Uh, but, you know, of course, yeah. uh, DC's profit margins would be vastly different if that were the case. Yes. Um, and, I mean, the, the tragedy comes through in the visual cues in this movie rather than really, you know, obvious narrative or any spoken sort of indicators. It, it uses symbolic moments to suggest that there's no other way but... Bruce doesn't know that, and that's why it's hard to watch. I was gonna say, yeah, and, and we have characters like like Alfred, who we see it's, it's we watch him experience it being hard to watch. So we're we, the movie is smart enough to allow us a little bit of a window uh, to to get insight into, into the the downfall of the character. Absolutely. In your universe, there's only one Spider-Man, but there is another universe. It looks and sounds like yours, but it's not. My name's Miles Morales. Hey, kid. You're like me. How? I knew my day would come around this time. I know it's complicated. You want to know what happened to you? I can teach you to be Spider-Man. Mm, I love this burger. So delicious. Mm, one of the best burgers I've ever had. You have money, right? I'm not very liquid right now. I think you're going to be a bad teacher. How am I supposed to save the whole world? You can't think about saving the world. You have to think about saving one person. One thing I know for sure, don't do it like me. Do it like you. Brooklyn! Let's jump 25 years into the future to a very different period in, well, the film business as a whole in comic book movies with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, a Sony Pictures computer animated film starring Miles Morales as the titular Spider-Man, who was only um, created in 2011 in the comics and really was the reason this movie was made the creators sort of were looking for a reason for this movie to exist there was already six spider-man movies up to that point um and miles was the, de- the deciding factor it was well we haven't seen this character on the big screen and there's something we can do that's different to those raimi movies and those ones that nobody likes to talk about that came after and 
and the and the MCU version. Tell us a little bit, little bit about um, Into the Spider Verse. Have you, firstly, have you have you read much Miles Morales in the comics? Uh, yeah, I've read. I've not read all of it, but I have read uh, quite a bit. I, I love Miles Morales. He's a character that was you know created by Brian Michael Bendis and uh, Sarah Pacelli. Uh, I and I think the the logic was you know there was um, some unfortunate uh, pushback uh, when the character was created, but uh, Bendis explained you know it very logically uh that you know 1962 peter parker looked like the average new yorker in 2011 the average new yorker did not look look like peter parker anymore so he wanted to create a new spider-man for you know the ultimate universe that represented a typical new york and you know queens and and brooklyn being uh, queens where peter parker is from um and and brooklyn where miles is from are you know two of the most uh, diverse um places on earth uh and so he created miles to sort of reflect that um you know uh an african-american with puerto rican an- ancestry who lives in a bilingual house uh, and who goes to a school for the gifted brooklyn visions academy and you know he gets bitten by a radioactive spider um and uh, yeah i love miles he's incredibly sweet incredibly well-intentioned and he gets into as many messes as Peter Parker, but he still feels very much like his own character and very much his own, you know, motivations and reasons for continuing to be Spider-Man. Now, I have very little experience with Spider-Man comics. I've read, uh, sorry, I've, I've seen all the movies except for the two amazing Spider-Man. I've seen bits and pieces of them, but I've never watched either of them in full and I don't really feel like I need to. The first one's okay. Um, the second yeah. one's a, a bit of a mess. I, I feel bad for everybody who was in it because it feels like, oh, this could have been good. But yeah, it, it's just, it makes, yeah. you, it makes you wish for better things for everybody. Yeah. Is Into the Spider-Verse inspired by any specific storyline or is it it's, is it its own beast? I know it, it sort of pulls together yeah. the alternate timelines. There there was a story in 2015 called Spider-Verse where all these different spider people sort of converge. But the villains are very different. In that story, there was a bunch of like dimensional hopping vampires that fed on uh, spider people. But um, the idea of Wilson Fisk utilizing a super collider to bring his family from another dimension, that came actually from a Brian Michael Bendis pitch. Uh, so it's it's a sort of a convergence of a lot of different stories from the comics to create uh, this one uh, film. Right. I mean, and that's, you remind me of the Kingpin's whole motivation in this movie. And it's, it's an attempt at, at creating an emotionally resonant villain, almost in the same way that Phantasm creates an emotionally resonant protagonist. I'm not sure that it's as, as well done here. They don't really give Kingpin all that much attention, despite the fact that he actually does have a motivation that we can relate to. But this is, this is Miles' yeah, film. Like, I think central to the um you know the, the heart of the film is is peter miles and and gwen stacy uh the the other the other spiders you know spider ham um spider noir and i don't recall the anime version's Pe- name Penny Parker. um yeah they're you know they're fun and the six of them being on the screen at the same time in theory it sounds like an absolute mess but it's it's just a lot of fun to see but those three latter ones, they're not all that consequential to the film, but Gwen, Peter, and Miles really make this film work. Yeah, the emotional resonance of, of those characters, I think, is pretty uh, remarkable, you know, because we see the uber 
Peter in the beginning sort of narrate how great he is at being, at being Spider-Man, and he is. He's Spider-Man if Peter Parker made every right decision all the time. Uh, and, and, you know, that's not as interesting a character to read in the comics, but it's something that Miles is going to aspire to. So it, it's a great sort of goal to keep in mind throughout the film and then, you know, a sort of motivation for all these other characters. And then, you know, we see the, the broken Peter, Peter B. Parker later. And so, you know, those two Peters, the divergence of their, of their lives is incredibly affecting and that this is the Peter that Miles is left with and they sort of both have to connect to, to lift each other up. And it's, it, it's very heartwarming, it, it, especially when Peter's having such difficulty with his own father, you know, he continues to gravitate towards his uncle, who um, is a criminal, and you know we don't find out till later till how deep into the criminal underworld he is. But um, you know his uncle Aaron, voiced by the great Mahershala Ali, it's hard not to be sort of enraptured by the charisma of you know this you know bachelor who's living this sort of high high class life and and is validating every one of Miles's emotions. Um, you know, giving advice on girls and, and all, that, all that kind of stuff. While his dad is this, you know, stern uh, cop who, who who loves him very much, but it's just it, it's easy to see why Miles could be romanticized uh, by by his uncle Aaron in, in a way to to just admire him and and you know why later find out his backstory is all the more tragic. They definitely give Miles the I guess quote unquote conventional superhero origin in that like you say the relationship with his father and and later on his uncle Aaron you know dying during an action sequence but the, but they they call it out in a way that that's not apologetic but they play with it you know they all these other spiders they they basically tell him like what's your origin going to be like what's what kind of shitty thing is going to happen to you to make you be the hero that you need to be it opens with peter parker saying all right let's do this one last time and then, of course, we have, like, six different narrations for origin stories. Yeah. It actually, it carries a lot of weight when when the Peter of the main universe dies. You know it's not his movie, but, you know, you, you haven't seen Peter Parker die on screen at this point. And you kind of, I mean, you, you mostly you feel for Miles because all of a sudden he had he had someone who was going to mentor him through this this really tricky period of his life and and then he's gone you know as, as quick as he had him and as you say it's it's a really heartwarming relationship that peter b parker has with miles you know they sort of they pull each other through their personal situations so i think maybe even gwen sort of sits outside of that in in that peter and miles are really pivotal to to this film resonating it just it has those those elements those 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 emotional beats that elevate this film and it's the reason it won you know the best animated picture um in 2018 yeah and and i love the dual performances of chris pine as peter parker and then jake johnson as peter b parker well of course chris pine is the person every every man wants to be like he's incredibly charismatic he he sounds (laughs) handsome he sounds like the most handsome version of of anybody in any dimension and then to have jake johnson be the substitute chris pine i think is just totally nails it and jake johnson is so funny and relatable in his performances yeah he's the most down-to-earth superhero that we've seen true let's talk a little bit about the the animation because one of the just stark differences between the two films we're discussing today is that they look completely different um you know one is hand-drawn with with elements of early cg this one takes 
CG and does some really fascinating things with it. In that it's, and the end goal was to mimic a comic book page, which is sort of good in theory and it, they really pull it off. There's some really fun moments where you've got like the anim- animatopoeia showing up on the screen and you've got the speech bubbles, which only start to, uh, or sorry, the thought bubbles, which only start to appear after he's been, after Miles yeah. has been bitten. And they use some really interesting animation techniques to achieve um, this sort of sped up, you know, style that that really does pay homage to the... Yeah, they they do this thing called animation on the twos, um, which is, you know, there's Mm. 24 frames frames a second in a film. So instead of having a different image in each frame, they do the same image two frames in a row. Uh, And so that makes Mm. everything sort of move faster. Uh, on screen, and so that's why there's a, a visual, um, a distinctive look to how everything moves on screen, and then you combine that with things like in the ch- first chase sequence of the Prowler and Miles, there's this panel that comes in from one side of the screen with the Prowler's eyes as his eyes narrow, and then from the other side of the screen, it's Miles running away, which is what the Prowler's seeing. And then from the bottom of the screen comes the Prowler's foot hitting an accelerator on his motorcycle. Uh, and so that's a very comic book image. And so when you combine all these techniques, especially with the uh, the dots, the Bende dots that are incorporated in, into the visuals of the, of the film, um, it really gives you the impression of uh, reading a uh, comic book. And it's pulled off brilliantly. Yeah, on top of the dots, you've got things like you know, they're using half tones, they're using misaligned colors, uh, motion lines, cross hatching, all these, just a slew of, of very comic book style animation to give it that really unique style. And it's not something you want to see replicated all that much because it's unique to this film. You know, you don't want to see Warner Brothers look at it and say, okay, we're going to do that now. Um, you know, I think I heard that they wanted to start developing a Batman Beyond film animated film in the wake of the success of this one and and you don't want to see you know a rinse yeah. and repeat but so much of this film of, of its rewatchability is that visual style you know there's there's the scene where miles and peter are swinging through the the forest um they do this this really fun thing with uh the frame rates where they transition it between 12 frames and 24 frames per second so in that particular scene you know, they've got Peter swinging at 24 frames per second because he's a pro at this. He's been doing this for a while. Whereas Miles is actually swinging at 12 frames per second just to really emphasize that he's doing this for the first time and he's slower and he's he's still learning the ropes. And that's a, they've used the technique to, to sort of embellish the narrative in a really beautiful way. Yeah, and, and they do things uh, like they hand draw um, the lines on characters' faces on top of the CGI. So the animators knew that they needed more emotional resonance into the animation of the character, so they took the time to actually use hand-drawn animation techniques to enhance um, you know, the emotional journey of the film. I, you know, I think that was an incredibly smart decision, especially considering how much time that probably added to the post-production process. There were, I think I read, it was roughly or just under 180 animators that they brought together for the film, which was the biggest, the, the biggest ever team that Sony Pictures had ever brought together for for one of the films. And, and yeah. it shows, you know, there's so much care and attention put in. I mean, you, you hear the phrase love letter thrown around, but it really is, you can tell that this is a movie that they put their heart and souls into. There's, there's three directors attached, which is 
pretty rare. A again, it's one of those scenes where you know you've got you've got three directors, you've got four four or more screenwriters attached. That sounds like you know a recipe for disaster, but they all seem to work really well in tandem. Yeah, there really seems to be a like a cohesion between you know the the whole creative team, um, and I, and I think that's you know a credit to uh, Phil Lord and, and Chris Miller who were you know the producers and and screenwriters on this thing, and I think their uh, fingerprints are all over the place. But I think you know we have to give credit to the the directors and the and the animators and, and the incredible uh, voice cast for giving everything such. You know, for for you that could have been so chaotic and such a big mess, it really comes together beautifully. I, I think. Yeah, a, a quote I read from one of the directors, Bob um, Persichetti, was that animation was the best medium to honor the comics, and that sort of it calls to mind the kind of the motivation that we had when we were discussing this episode was that the animated superhero movies just it's it just seems to be a really sh a really good fit for for as good as you know the the, the countless live action superhero movies are. I, I don't I don't want to compare live action versus animation because th there is as many good live action or more good than bad. You know, on top of movies like The Incredibles one and and two, um, for all the flack that two gets, I don't think it's a bad movie in any way. You know, you've got the Lego Batman movie which has that same sort of multiversal element as Spider-Verse. And that, that movie is almost a parody of Batman while also honoring him at the same time. I think the animation is is a really good fit for superhero for superheroes, and I think it needs to be utilized yeah. more. And I think one lesson that I do want other animated films, especially superhero films, to, to take from this movie, and I don't mean like imitate it, but you know, if you watch a movie, movies like The Incredibles or, or Big Hero 6, which you know are very good to great. It's clear in like the the vocal performances and the voice acting that just nobody was in the same room when they recorded their voices, and it's clear that every syllable has to be understood, and nobody talks over one another. Maybe a little bit in The Incredibles. In here, in in Spider Verse, it feels like these characters are actually having conversations, and um, hmm. Shamik Moore and uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who plays. Miles' father, they were in the same room together when they recorded. Shamik Moore was in the same room when he recorded with Mahershal Ali. So we get to hear them act together. So we get much more naturalistic, naturalistic performances. We, we hear dialogue overlap the way real conversations do. And I think that really helps sell the emotional core of, of the story, which is so out there and so outlandish. It's helped by moments like the the spiders, when they meet each other, they, you know, they can say, oh, you're like me. Like the, their spider sense connects them in, in a way that, that they can't really understand. Um, but we, we feel that connection um, because the animation, both the performances, both in the animation and, and with the voice actors. Yeah, the interactions are, are really authentic. From a narrative perspective, they really sell it. Miles and Peter's relationship is is spot on and is a real big part of the draw of the film. And as, as good as the visual style is and as great as those action sequences look and, you know, as vibrant and fresh and, and exciting it all is, it wouldn't mean much if the if if these characters weren't bouncing off one another as as well as they do. And then you've got a lot a lot of those visual elements. It, it's a funny film, and 
a lot of the funniest parts for me anyway were the were the wordless ones were the visual cues like the as i mentioned like the onomatopoeia or like miles when he gets bitten it's it's this big dramatic sort of sequence where it, it, it shows the poison entering his bloodstream and then it cuts to miles just sort of nonchalantly smacking the spider off his hand or then when peter b parker is being taken through the ceiling into another dimension he's he's trying to get that one last bite of his pizza all these really fun little little moments they're just (laughs) they make it feel very very fresh and very very natural uh the one moment that the funniest music cue is definitely when they uh they get suited up to go to the alchemex plant and they you hear um the song saint Elmo's fire play you know this cheesy 80s ballad as they're taking a bus it just deflate it, it seems like it's setting you up for a great you know superhero montage and you don't get it and it's hilarious i love actually i love the the introduction to miles at the start as well and he's and again they're playing playing uh some licensed music i can't remember what the song was yeah but, i think that's um, um that's sunflower at the beginning yeah and and it um transitions into miles and he's got his headphones in and you hear him sort of mumbling the words because he doesn't know them but he's he's into the music and we've all been there like we've all been we've all sung badly to songs we don't actually know all the words to and that's just such a great way to get you on 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 the side of the protagonist yeah yeah and and i love they they end the movie the same way too with him in his room uh listening to music on his headphones i think that that's really nice and and the music i don't know what it is about hip-hop but it's able to have songs about how awesome it is to be a superhero. Like w- with Elevate, you know, there's the line like, okay, I fight crime through the nighttime, I'm Robin Hood on the Black Knight. Like, you, you can't really do that with like uh, a rock song. Because, well, I don't know. I remember the Nickelback song Hero. That shit was awful. Mm. And as much as I like the Tim Burton Batman movie, those Prince songs are bad. Pat Tense is a bad song. But What's Up Danger yeah. is awesome. I love that song. It is good. And then when they play Scared of the Dark, when you know when everyone is mourning yeah. Peter Parker, so that's sort of flipping flipping the script, and that, that song fits really well. I don't know. Are we going to be saying in 20 years' time that, that these songs really age the film? Who knows? But <laughs> Well, I think um, with animation, I think with how stylized this movie is, I think this will stick it to a very specific time and place in movie history and in, in animation history. That doesn't mean it's going to be bad to watch. I, I just don't think it's going to be as classic as as like, like if, if you released the 1994 Lion King today, it would look like a, a modern movie as, as classic as it was then. But but I think this one um, is very much of its time. And that, that does not detract from its greatness. Yeah, uh, I'm somebody who loves the original series Star Trek, and that's something that only could have happened in 1966. So I, I, I don't think this is going to be a timeless film, but I think it's going to be something that's going to be enjoyed for forever. See, I would almost argue the opposite, assuming that the style that they use in this film doesn't get repeated and you know it will be because there are sequels to spider-verse in the works and and those will have it but i mean outside of this franchise or series of films you know if if this style doesn't get repeated and overused then maybe these films will feel like they exist outside of time like some of the best movies whether it's live action or animated do again that's one of those things that time's gonna tell and perhaps the music will make it feel less timeless but for the time being certainly yeah, doesn't yeah harm it. No, nobody says casablanca is a 
bad movie because as time goes by is a very 1940s torch song yeah true so let's talk a little bit about the spider-verse story what you know we've talked all about the performances about the the characters the techniques that they've used but what did you think of the actual narrative did you find that it that it, it did much for you it's certainly not hugely original but that that never means bad i think because it's so much a miles story I think it, it it works for me. The the vicissitudes of the science and the multiple d- dimensions that, that are brought in are interesting and provide an excuse for some really cool visuals and some really great gags when you bring in the different spiders. But because the movie does such a good job of centering the story on Miles and his feelings and his relationship with his father and with his uncle and with, and with Peter Parker, that's what makes it, it work for me. It, especially, you know, seeing him sort of rise to the occasion and assume the role of spider-man like he really issues there's a running theme of great expectations uh, in the film uh where you know he's signed that book to read and so he spray paints no expectations on on the wall he's the one who then expects great things of himself he he puts away other people's expectations of him and assumes the role that best fits him and if that means um, this plot about Dr. Octopus creating a, a a doorway to infinite dimensions and hey, cool. I mean, as, as breakneck as the pace of this film is, they're really, really patient with with paying off Miles' journey. Obviously, Miles is wearing a, a, co- a costume Spider-Man suit for, for most of the film. And then the, the they're not in a rush to put him in his own suit. And because of that, because he only does it near the end and he has that amazing sequence where he leaps off of the building, you know, it's 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 literally the poster yeah, that, shot. Yeah, that was my favorite moment in movies in 2018. When What's Up Danger starts playing and he jumps off the building and, like, the whole shot turns upside down. It, it's a transcendent moment in movies. Brilliant. And then, it, yeah, and he, and he goes and he, he really saves the day. He, he owns the role. It's a little little bit of a leap that the dynamic of the group can have felt so so life-changing for him because most of them he spent, what, a couple yeah, of hours yeah. with at most. But, you know, you, you look past that in a movie like this, it, it, it doesn't harm it. It doesn't pull you out of it in any way. The, the farewells maybe, you know, when Spider-Ham and Penny Parker... Um, leave and when Penny Parker's robot dies they may be trying to elicit a response but not really mm. earning it but these are really really nitpicky sort of things that I'm pointing out and it, it's not something that bothers me when you're 15 years old everything is the biggest deal to have ever happened so I think it makes sense for Miles to really think that this is the biggest moment in anyone's life ever so, so for me it makes sense that's true <laughs> And for for the nitpicks that I have, you know, the farewells between Miles and and Gwen and Miles and and Parker are really good. I love that Miles definitely, you know, is attracted to Gwen at least initially, but it, it turns into this really cool platonic sort of camaraderie by the end of it. Yeah, I love the the jibes they take at each other and like like him say nice haircut and her say like, you're not allowed to say that to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and and there's other real great through lines that the movie has, like the hay of, you know, putting his hand on, on his shoulder, you know, from 
advice from Uncle Aaron, and he does that to Kingpin and you know shocks him, or how he um, at at some point early in the film, Peter Parker tells him to you know watch the don't watch the mouth, watch the hands, and Miles Morales says the same thing when he steals the, the goober uh, from Peter, so he so Peter then doesn't have to sacrifice himself, and Miles ends up sending Peter home. So the fact that oh you, know, you see him uh, learning his lessons from his mentors and, and applying them in ways to help him save the day. Yeah, the the payoffs in this movie are really great. Like the the setups and payoffs always hit their mark. I think one other thing that I love that that they you know added to sort of complete Miles's journey is that it's not the fear of death or or the the pressure from his peers that enables Miles to get his powers to perform at will it's after his dad visits him in his dorm and ha- they have that co- that one-sided conversation through his door and you know miles finally hears from his father that his father like loves him and, and, and believes in him um in a very kind of raw and honest way and after that is when peter uh, i'm sorry this is when miles is able to you know turn invisible and use his venom blast at, at will and so i thought that was a great moment for the film to have a turning point for Miles. Yeah, the the relationship between the father and son, again, it's another one of those sort of understated moments that I think we've brought up a few times where it may not necessarily be the the flashiest or the the most talked about relationship or thread in the film, but it plays this really beautiful subtle role in in getting miles to where where he needed to go by the end of the film for me the conclusion with once the other spiders leave the scene and it's miles and kingpin as much as i'm invested in miles miles's journey at that point it almost feels over and his fight with kingpin doesn't really like i don't really care for it it's it's fine but but i'm not all that invested and i'm not trying to be critical because i love this film but the the whole message of the film which is anyone can be a hero it kind of falls apart with the entire premise of the movie which is the kid gets bitten by a radioactive spider yeah yeah and now he's the only one who's able to to save the day yeah i think because you you have the other spiders are now gone and it's just miles and kingpin you kind of will you know Miles isn't going to lose a fight to Kingpin in, in this cartoon superhero movie. And so you're just kind of like waiting for the, the, the payoff to happen. But yeah, it's it's not exactly a uh, a major quibble. No. And and the cleanup afterwards and when Miles swings down and hugs his dad and his dad is, wait, what the hell's going on? I, I almost thought when I first saw it, like, is he, is he going to, you know, reveal his identity? And I thought that would have been a really nice moment, but probably not true to to the character that would be a really interesting place to take it to in in a sequel because in the comics um at, at least uh in the in the last couple of years there was a long period of time where miles's dad uh knew he was spider-man and his mom didn't and then his mom eventually found out and that they both had been keeping it her and that was you know uh kind of heartbreaking for her to have to take and then know that miles is out there risking his life you know, every day. And so we, we see some great interaction with Miles's mother as well as this incredibly, you know, warm and, and caregiving person. And so possible future plot lines could be Miles trying to keep this secret from his parents, who he obviously loves very much. Yeah, and I think any sequel to this movie is going to need to do some things where it, where it shakes it up. Because while this this one introduces the, multi, uh, the multiverses and... 
and all that. It it is just an origin story through and through. So once you start throwing in sequels, you need to there needs to be a reason for those sequels. And I think they're they're talking about spin-offs on um Spider Gwen spin-offs and maybe even TV shows. They really want to go all in in this franchise and I, I wanna see more of, of Miles and, and Peter B. Parker and Spider Gwen yeah. together. I don't know if that's where they're gonna if they're going to keep opening up those portals. Um, or how they're going to justify that. Obviously, having not read any of those of those comics, I don't, I don't know if that's... Yeah, at, at one point, uh, the comics really did start cheating with the whole multiverse thing, where they just started to give all these spider people this like wrist transponder thing, where if they just press a button, they automatically switch to a different universe, which, like, at this point... At that point, why even bother having them in different universes? <laughs> they can just easily transport themselves. Um, but it would be great if we got to see more of Spider-Man 2099. Like, we got to see it at the end of the film in the uh, post-credit scene, because uh, mm. that's a really interesting character, uh, especially the, the way they did it. it um, and it'd be great to see Oscar Isaacs reprise that role. Yeah. Are, are you invested in this direction? Like, do you want to see more? Do you want to see this franchise expand? Or is Spider-Verse sort of a something that you enjoy but you know you can give or take more movies yeah yeah i would love to see more um if you keep the creative team together i think it's more discernment a sequel than a lot of other franchises that get they get multiple sequels um i I do love the the two mcu spider-man movies they're they're great uh and then i'm sure we're gonna get a third one at, at some point and i know we're we're getting another a Venom movie, uh, which I have mixed feelings about, but actually, I, I think I would like a, I would like a movie, I, I would like a Venom movie I like, I like better. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there's so many doors you can go through to tell more Spider stories. I think it, it definitely deserves its own sequel. Yeah, and I think it's it was a necessary step, as 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 I said earlier. The inspiration was that they could do something different to what all the big screen Spider-Man movies have done. And even though, obviously, you know, the differences between the Peter Parkers from the Raimi trilogy to the MCU movies is very different. Miles is just a really refreshing direction for them to go with it. And I'm glad they went with an animated direction like i'm glad they've just that that the money was put in by sony and that they they really gave it a shot because this could have just been a by the numbers superhero movie and i think that you mentioned big hero 6 i think that that is a good movie but again it's quite by the numbers it's rather forgettable i you know i rewatched it recently and i i didn't even remember what happened after the first time i saw it and and it, it's 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 one of those films where after a couple of days you yeah. forget what happened really and into the spider-verse doesn't have that because it elevates itself and it elevates you know the character of spider-man and it it does things that super superhero movies need to keep doing which is innovating yeah and, and i think Spider-Man is such an important character in, in comic books because he was created by, you know, Stan Lee to, to be the most relatable comic book hero. I, I, I really feel that, that you know, over the decades he's succeeded in, in, in doing that. Um, you know, there's been dozens or hundreds of artists and, and, and writers to have endeavored in that goal. And I, I think he's somebody, whether it's Peter Parker or Miles Morales or, or, or Spider-Gwen, it, it, it's a character that manages to connect with people in a way that um, even characters like Batman or Superman doesn't, not necessarily there, but just in a very different, more relatable way. Like it, it's hard to see yourself in Batman or Superman 
or Captain America or Thor, the way readers and movie watchers can see themselves in, in Spider-Man. And so that, I think that's why people are always so eager to see the next Spider-Man movie, even if we have 12 already. True. And as I'm going to go back to your mention of Stan Lee because his cameo in this movie is really cool. And I think it was his last ever cameo. So it has has that sort of special place in any Marvel Stanley fan's heart. My understanding is that he was the only voice actor to whom the production team actually went for his performance rather than having, you know, the actors come to them. Yeah, and it's an incredibly, I think, fitting farewell to Stan Lee because it's very Stan Lee to be selling merch uh, at, at somebody's <laughs> funeral. <laughs> Yeah, bring out the, the, the <laughs> last every last cent you can out of a character. That's a Stanley way. Yeah, and he he flashes that um, that toothy yeah. smile, and it's it's got the sign on the costume saying yeah. no refunds. It's another example of that wordless comedy that I think this film is just so good at. This film rewards careful, careful watching the way that I think a lot of uh, other animated films don't go to the trouble of e- even attempting. Um, whether you know it's it's that. The, the wordless comedy or the fact that Stanley appears at several other points in the movie uh, just as like a, a bystander or the fact that like like there's a multiverse map in the background at, at one point where and you see like Universe 616 which is the mainstream Marvel Universe and then, and then 65 which is the, the Grant Stacy Universe and then several others and so and it's not just easter eggs like that but you know we talked about the the bende dots before but you know the 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 sort of the energy of the super collider is made up of big dots so there is a great synchronicity between the chaos created by the super collider and the black hole it makes and the sort of the very fabric of the world that you're, you're living in like you see the breakdown of reality in the super collider so it's the architecture of end of everything you know is in its actual visual design and it's incredibly carefully done and not just haphazard one of the beauties of of animation as as a medium that i i never stop appreciating is that attention to detail that that goes into to all of it like and that's whether it's cg animation whether it's hand drawn you know stop motion all of it takes so much genuine hard and intricate work from some really talented artists and i have nothing but admiration for people who who do this for a living because it it wouldn't always feel like artistic work. It would often feel very technical and maybe a little dry at times, but the the end results are always just stunning. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah, for, for 180-some people to, to work on this movie and for that to turn into a, a cohesive story of a 15-year-old, you know, finding this place in the world, I think is incredible. So... Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, released in 2018, won Best Animated Picture of that year. It had a worldwide box office gross of $375.5 million against a budget of $90 million. Batman Mask of the Phantasm was made on a budget of $6 million and didn't even make it back. These two films couldn't be more different, both from a production standpoint, from a financial standpoint, and from a visual style and narrative style. Everything about them is different, but they belong in a category of superhero film that unto themselves. I think that they set the standard for animated superhero movies, but maybe for superheroes movies in in general. I don't think either of them could be done as live action, but I think that they 
they harbor the heart and soul and filmmaking talent that that you want to see replicated every single time anyone makes not just a superhero movie but any any movie animated or live action and i think they they all feature some real generational talents like like with phantasm you have alan bennett and paul dini and, and bruce tim who really changed the face of batman and i think for a generation of of kids that animated version of batman was the adaptation and and that goes for both the series and the um the the, the film and you know it, it certainly it certainly changed the way Batman looked and sound like in in my mind. And I think, I hope for a generation of kids now, for them, a Miles Morales is, is going to be the Spider-Man. And, and I think when, when I see kids who are, you know, like under 18 coming to my store, I think for them, Miles Morales is Spider-Man now. I mean, I think in a, in a large part, that is due to the story that Into the Spider-Verse has been able to tell. And it's great for me to tell a 12-year-old, like, there is Miles in a comic book. I mean, he's so much like what we saw on screen. Yeah. And I don't know, what are your thoughts on, you know, Mask of the Phantasm came out in 1993. Obviously, it wasn't popular theatrically, but it grew sort of a cult following and, and found its its second life in home video. Does the legacy of a film like that that came out at a time when superhero movies were still not common um, and particularly, you know, it might be the first animated theatrical superhero film ever. I don't want to be quoted on that because I may not be remembering something right now. I mean, we had like the, the Fleischer Superman shorts. Those certainly weren't feature length films. Yeah. And comparing that to something like Spider-Verse that hits theaters, makes, makes a lot of money, becomes a resounding success, even in a saturated comic book movie world. Do you feel that it can be easier for a, for a story in this genre to get buried by the by the fact that there's so much of it um as opposed to when phantasm would have come out and there just wasn't that much of it and it's it maybe feels a bit more it's a it is a weird dichotomy because in 1993 there definitely wasn't an appetite for superhero movies like there is now but then on the other hand the market is so saturated that it seems like your your film could be lost so i think there's you know benefits and deficits of uh or, or, or disadvantages uh, of releasing your film uh in, in either in either era but i think at least now uh, studios know how to market a superhero film but regardless like you know you have six-year-olds and like my parents like spider-verse leonard leonard Moulton, somebody who's talked a lot about how like marvel movies are crediting out other smaller independent films from from the theaters said that this is one of the best animated movies ever made in, in a lot of ways a good art will find a way to reach people um sometimes it takes too long uh sometimes it's not immediately recognized like with phantasm but but i think the people who need the story will find it and uh for spider-verse it turned out a lot of people needed that story yeah and it would be foolish to ever argue that there's too much of something if there's more good than bad and and i think that's certainly the case with superhero movies and you know animated movies at the moment there's there's a lot of them but there's a lot of good ones so you know why does it matter when there's you know maybe a bad one like venom which personally hated uh, made a lot of money so hopefully it it leads to something good but if it's one bad movie out of a dozen then i don't think we have much to <laughs> complain about really and, and, and i am somebody who is frustrated 
at the sort of the, the monolithic landscape of animated films, uh, at least theatrically in America. It seems like if it's not Disney, Pixar, or, or DreamWorks, it's not worth seeing. Which is it just kind of puzzles me because there's so much variety in animation on television. You know, obviously there's this incredible respect and knowledge of Studio Ghibli films in, in America, but nobody goes to see them in theaters. Hopefully, something like Into the Spider Verse could open the gates for things that take risks visually and artistically, but aren't superheroes or aren't Disney Pixar. Cross your fingers. It would, it would be really interesting to see a Studio Ghibli version of a superhero movie. Like what 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 they would do with Spider Man, I think would be fascinating. That's yeah, you know, never gonna happen. But 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 hopefully this will create more opportunities for more and different animated films in the United States. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent with that. John, it's been a pleasure again. It was we only spoke not too long ago on Constantine, which is getting a little bit of uh, media attention at the moment. Um, via comic-con which is nice but again it's been a pleasure if anyone wants to to reach out to you and you know talk about anything their hearts desire comics movies or, or you know american politics where can they find you you can hear me uh, or, or read my thoughts or whatever on comic books movies uh, at quasar sniffer on twitter and instagram my store comics connection is on facebook you can find our store at comicsconnection.com where you can buy stuff from me um i'm always ranting about comic books and movies that, that i love and making jokes about myself um and so hayden thank you so much for doing this with me it, it was so much fun uh, i really appreciate it thank you you can find me at hayden spiral on twitter and facebook um, and you can find the rest of the team at film89.co.uk before we leave i do want to quickly thank everyone who tuned in for making our milestone 50th episode one of our top five most downloaded episodes ever we really yeah. appreciate all of your support support yeah we couldn't um we couldn't do it without each and every one of you and yeah we're just so grateful that we get to do this if you like what you hear, please consider dropping us a review on Apple Podcasts. Other than that, we'll speak to you all again in the very near future. Stay safe.